My name is Edward Madigan. I work for the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and I'm going to talk about morality during the First World War and the stance of the British clergy. I think there's quite a, a sincere desire on the part of historians of this period to see the centenaries that begin in 2014 become a time of, of genuine reassessment and reanalysis and reimagination of the First World War to really try and get a handle on what this conflict meant to European societies. And I hope personally, and I think uh, some of my colleagues would share this hope, that historians will play quite an active role in that process. But one of the challenges I think historians are going to face over the course of centenaries when, when they're trying to inform people about the dynamics of the First World War is that people quite understandably tend to look at the First World War retrospectively through the prism of the Second World War. Now, I think that's true at a popular level, but I also think that's definitely present for academics as well. Um, so what people know or think they know about the First World War is very often informed by their understanding of the later conflict. And I think this is definitely true in the case of the morality of the two world wars. So when we think about the Second World War, it seems like a very morally clear-cut conflict. Nazism was a self-evident evil that simply had to be defeated. And whatever we think about the extreme violence that took place between 1939 and 1945, there is a general consensus that the Allies retained the high moral ground throughout the conflict. The end result of the war, the defeat of the Nazi state and indeed Imperial Japan and Fascist Italy, these were good things, clearly. So fighting the war and winning the war, were, these were worth doing, these were worthwhile endeavours. When people think of the First World War, by contrast, the moral dimension seems a lot less obvious. Uh, the motives, the, the sort of intentions of the states that went to war in 1914 seem a lot less honourable and just than those that went to war in 1939. And despite decades of revisionist commentary from various historians, there is a persistent view of the First World War as a futile conflict, perhaps the ultimate futile conflict. Now, I'm not going to take a stance on the um, objective morality of either of the world wars, but one thing I'd really like to stress today is that, however we tend to see it today, many of those who experienced the First World War on both sides, on either side, across the religious states, understood the conflict as a profoundly moral endeavour. Now this was true, I think, for civilians and servicemen across the belligerent states, but I'm going to focus on Britain and on the wartime activity and rhetoric of the British clergy. Now, with some notable exceptions, historians of the First World War have generally overlooked the role played by the clergy in this cataclysmic conflict. But I would argue that if we want to understand the cultural dimension to the war, if we want to understand how contemporaries interpreted this conflict as they experienced it, we simply cannot ignore the wartime rhetoric and activity of the clergy. When a man takes the decision to go to, through clerical training and ordination and become a priest or a minister or, or a rabbi, what he is saying to the world is, I know something about morality. I know something of good and evil. And I'm qualified to comment and offer guidance on such things. So the clergy have traditionally acted 
as moral arbiters in society. They present themselves as those best qualified to identify and condemn evil. Now, during the Great War, a total war, this becomes a very interesting dynamic. And the people who um, are the self-appointed moral arbiters on either side play an absolutely central role. In an era of mass participation in politics, when even those who were excluded from the political process were becoming increasingly well represented and organised, European populations could not simply be coerced into fighting wars that they felt were unjust or unnecessary. And governments could not wage war effectively without a good deal of popular consent. And this was especially the case in the United Kingdom in 1914, a state that, unlike France, Belgium and Germany, was not invaded in the first weeks of August 1914 and was not under any direct threat of invasion. Britain, moreover, alone among the belligerent states, had no system of mass military conscription in place in 1914. So, once war was declared on the 4th of August, the task of selling the war to the British people began in earnest. So military mobilisation in the UK was facilitated and enhanced by a process of cultural mobilisation through which a whole range of different organisations and individuals presented the European conflict as a righteous war in which British involvement was not only necessary and legitimate, but also honourable and just. This process was spearheaded, usually voluntarily, by the most influential figures in British public life, politicians, journalists, authors, and crucially, the clergymen of the various churches. Now, I should stress that this is not something that's strictly top-down. It comes from all levels of society. Now, I'm going to focus primarily on the Church of England, but I should really emphasise that all of the various religious bodies across the United Kingdom supported the British war effort to a greater or lesser extent. Now, this support was very firmly based on the perception of the German enemy as unchristian, or at least at best as unchristian, at worst as depraved, malevolent barbarous. The German violation of Belgian neutrality at the beginning of August gave the British government a, a legitimate casus belli, but German violence against French and Belgian civilians persuaded many in Britain that the Allied cause was not only legitimate, but morally righteous. So stories of atrocities, both real and imagined, were absolutely central to cultural mobilisation in the United Kingdom during the first two months of the war. When British and Irish civilians fell victim to enemy aggression in the Zeppelin and U-boat campaigns of 1915 and later, the popular perception of the war as a righteous crusade was further reinforced. The highly moral prism through which the war was perceived, especially in 1914 and 15, meant that clergymen often felt that it was very much within their remit to comment on the war and interpret it in religious terms. Now, clerical support for the war manifests itself in a, in a variety of different ways. And I should point out that some voices were less strident than others, and that certain prominent clergy advocated a spirit of calm conciliation toward the German people. So you have some fairly prominent clergymen who say, yes, we're at war, yes, we want to win, yes, we're right, but you know, we're not supposed to hate our enemy, and so forth. There was also at least some clerical questioning of British military tactics. Uh, in 1915, for example, the Archbishop of Canterbury um, offered mild criticism of the British use of poison gas on the Western Front and the decision to bomb German cities in reprisal for Zeppelin raids. 
These nuances notwithstanding, however, it is striking just how unanimous and widespread church support for the war actually was. Now, this is perhaps unsurprising in the cases of the established churches of England and Scotland, but British and Irish Roman Catholics, Irish and English Presbyterians, Methodists, and the clergy of each of the various nonconformist churches across the UK, along with the leaders of the British Jewish community, all either act, uh, acquiesced in or actively supported the war effort. Even the British Society of Friends, the Quakers, traditionally the most pacifist of the religious institutions, stopped short of condemning the British declaration of war and the subsequent national mobilisation. Now, dissenting clerical voices were not unheard of, and there's some interesting cases of um, quite courageous clergymen going very much against the tide of public opinion and being anti-war, not simply equivocal about the war, but anti-war. But no more than a handful of clergy appear to have formally really opposed, it opposed the war publicly. And certainly none of the leaders of the various religious, church, uh, religious institutions came out against mobilisation. This widespread support for the war among the British clergy in part reflects the wider anti-German mood of the, of the population, but it also reveals an apparently influential, uh, sorry, an apparently sincere clerical understanding of the conflict as a just war, a view that clergymen were keen to share with their congregations. Now, I want to take a look, just a quick look, at a, a, a kind of an extreme example of clerical support for the war. Uh, the Bishop of London, Arthur Foley Winnington Ingram, was a vocal supporter of the British war effort from the outset, and while his pulpit rhetoric to begin with was actually quite conciliatory, as the war dragged on, his sermons became increasingly bellicose and aggressive. Real and alleged atrocities were one of his favourite themes, and he consistently painted the Germans as the embodiment of malevolent depravity. On the 28th of November 1915, so well over a year into the war, he preached what was probably the most inflammatory sermon of the entire conflict. Now, the sermon is, was published in full a couple of years later, um, but I'm just going to quote to you a, a brief passage, a very pointed passage. To save the freedom of the world, to save liberty's own self, to save the honour of men and women and the innocence of children, everything that is noblest in Europe, everyone that puts principle above ease and life itself beyond mere living, are banded in a great crusade. We cannot deny it. To kill Germans. To kill them, not for the sake of killing, but to save the world. To kill the good as well as the bad, to kill the young men as well as the old, to kill those who have shown kindness to our wounded as well as those fiends who crucified the Canadian sergeant, who superintended the Armenian massacres, who sank the Lusitania and who turned the machine guns on the civilians of Ayrshot and Duvin, and to kill them lest the civilization of the world itself be killed. The bishop went on to say that he looked, quote, on everyone who fights for this cause as a hero and everyone who dies in it as a martyr. Now, even in the extraordinary circumstances of a world war, these are really strong words. And I think had they been uttered by a more junior clergyman, they might not take on the same significance. But the Bishop of London was the third most senior clergyman in the Church of England. And remember, you know, a century ago, this is a very much more elevated, very much more influential position 
than it is today. Uh, for Londoners, he had been the public face of the church for over a decade, and he exerted considerable public influence. The sermon, when he preached it, was heard by around 2,000 Anglicans, on the, so on the day it was preached. And when it was published two years later as part of a collection of his war sermons, it reached a much larger audience. You're talking about the tens of thousands. In using such aggressive, uncompromising language, the bishop was going beyond simply offering support for the war effort. He was apparently endorsing indiscriminate violence against the German people. And by referring to the Allied war dead as martyrs, he was suggesting that those who died in the conflict were fulfilling a Christian destiny, as long, of course, as they died on the right side. Presumably he didn't ex extend that martyrdom to the German or Turkish enemies. Now, I think there is a sense in which you do have to put this sermon in context. It was made well over a year into the war. The bishop himself apparently had been quite affected by the deaths of uh, London civilians during the summer of 1915 at the hands of um, the, or during the Zeppelin air raids. But it's the sort of quote that it's actually very difficult to take out of context. I mean, what he says is there in black and white. Nor was Winnington Ingram the only senior Anglican clergyman who was prepared to use such extreme rhetoric in the pulpit. Basil Wilberforce, the Archdeacon of Westminster and chaplain to the House of Commons, was arguably even more belligerent. On the first Sunday of the war, he preached a sermon to uh, a battalion of the Queen's Mes Westminster Volunteers, in which he assured them that, quote, in such a struggle as that before us now, you are positively obeying God by killing men. And remember, that's, you know, less than a week into the war. Uh, much later, early in 1916, the Archdeacon told another congregation that, quote, the killing of Germans is a divine service in the fullest acceptance of that term. Now, what are we to make, almost a century on, of statements like this? Well, I suppose the first thing to ask is how representative, uh, how typical were Winnington Ingram and Wilberforce? Well, I think their basic support for the war and their belief in the righteousness of the Allied cause was highly typical. And it was very widespread among the clergy. It was shared by virtually all British priests and ministers and, you know, crucially, by the overwhelming majority of the population. The extreme language they used and their view of the conflict as a holy war, and Winnington Ingram uses that term, holy war, were much less typical. Other senior Church of England figures, people like the Archbishops of Canterbury and York, the Bishop of Winchester and Oxford and so forth, these very senior people, you know, they all supported the war effort and they were all kind of very much in favour of British victory, but they never resorted to this sort of extreme, belligerent, anti-German language. The very outspoken belligerence of figures like Winnington Ingram and Wilberforce also attracted a certain amount of criticism during the war. Uh, referring to Wilberforce's pulpit rhetoric in the House of Commons in 1916, the Liberal MP Robert Outhwaite remarked that the British clergy were, quote, preaching not thou shalt not kill, but thou shalt kill. So this wasn't something that went unnoticed during the war itself. But it's striking that the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he, in the House of Lords in 1915, he questioned the British use of poison gas and British bombardment of uh, German civilians he brought down on himself an absolute torrent of criticism and abuse. Yet when the Bishop of London said something that today looks a lot more unreasonable, there was relatively little criticism. Junior Anglican clergymen 
however, and especially those who were serving as army chaplains on the Western Front, became increasingly uncomfortable with the vocally pro-war stance of the civilian clergy. Many of them felt that belligerence of the civilian clergy worked against their influence with officers and men. So there was a sort of a practical issue they had with it. Like, you know, if, if it's being reported, these sort of ser sermons and very aggressive anti-German rhetoric is being reported as representative of what our church feels, then that won't be good for our influence at the front. But I think they also had a moral issue with it. Many of them saw it as decidedly unchristian. In a diary entry written during the Battle of Arras in the spring of 1917, Oswin Crichton, one of, the most, uh, one of the more articulate of the Anglican chaplains who served in France, had the following to say. So, very different context to the Bishop of London. Uh, he's writing at the front in the spring of 1917. We are always being taught to hate the Germans and to refuse to think or speak of peace. We are told about our glorious cause till it simply stinks in the nostrils of the average man. We all know we have to fight as long as we wear the uniform and have thereby committed ourselves to slaughtering as many Germans as possible. But I for one, and I tell my men exactly the same, utterly refuse to hate the Kaiser or any of them or to believe that I'm fighting for a glorious cause or anything that the papers tell me. Now, of course, Crichton himself was a non-combatant, he was a chaplain, so he wasn't directly involved in the killing of Germans, but he was exposed to enemy aggression and violence at the front, and he was killed the following year. He was killed in 1918. Now, both the Bishop of London and Osmond Crichton, who coincidentally was the son of a former Bishop of London, um, were clergymen. They were both Anglican clergymen, and they both supported the war. They both believed in the moral righteousness of the British cause. But they had a very different sort of understanding of the implications of supporting that war. And I think there's a clear difference there, you know, that uh, Crichton, of course, accepts that essentially what we're doing here is killing Germans. That's the end goal here. It's the aim of this endeavour. And yet we don't have to sort of dress it up as a glorious cause. Now, just to conclude, I would say that as we go through the centenaries, I would genuinely like to see more public discussion about the morality of the war and less of a sort of a, a dismissal of the Great War as either an ultimately futile war, the ultimate example of the futility of war, or on the other hand, actually something that had quite a lot of redeeming features from a military, military perspective. All wars, or at least, how should I put this, a war, any war, first and foremost, is a military endeavour. And the essence of that endeavour is killing. So when one supports a war, irrespective of what the bigger picture is, that is what you are supporting. And the case of clergymen during the First World War, and I think perhaps in particular Anglican clergymen, really brings that out into sharp relief. Thank you for listening.